Hello, hello, it is Graham Norton here, inviting you to slip between the covers and spend some quality time with me here at my book club. We have a lot of terrific tales and stirring stories to talk about, and to make sure we don't lose the plot, I am delighted to say I'm joined by plot monitor extraordinaire Alex Clark. And Alex, I believe we're lucky to have you at all. Tell me everything. Well, everything would take too long. Suffice to say, the last time we spoke, I was on holiday. I came back from holiday and on my rather convoluted route back, which included a massive delay due to weather, uh, I contracted a bug. I went down with the bug and then suddenly there I was in hospital with pneumonia. (gasps) I know. And what's the takeaway from this? Never get on a cruise. I would say (laughs) never sit in a really cold airport for a really long time. Well, I'm glad to hear you sounding so great this morning, Alex. I am absolutely fine. Do you know what it is, Graham? Do you know what it is? When you've been poorly and you're in, you know, convalescence, you have to do really clean living. So actually paradoxically, I'm much healthier now, you see. Oh, that's good. It's all vegetables and broths and yes. wholesome television programmes. Of course, they don't bring the drinks trolley around at the hospital. They so do it's, not. Uh... They do They do not. Although, as you will, will no doubt recognise, in an Irish hospital, uh, the cup of tea is never far from you. You're never sitting there waiting for a cup of tea. <laughs> the urn is constantly <laughs> the on. The urn is constantly on. Well, I have to say, there is a kind of a, 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 something of a suffering theme emerging today, because <laughs> Our book of the week this time is Germinal by Emile Zola, a story of hardship, class warfare and industrial uprising set in 1860s France. Here to talk about it are Stuart, who chose it for us to read, Gavern, Gerard and Saima. Hello, everybody. Hey. Hi, Graham. Hi. Hi. Nice to see you all. And Saima, of course, you run the Bradford Literary Festival and I hear there's been some good news. <laughs> Yes, it's been really exciting. We uh, got Arts Council England funding and we are now the uh, largest diverse-led cultural organisation in the country, which is fantastic. A round of applause. Absolutely. I mean, it Thank is you. it is so hard <laughs> oh. at the minute for, for festivals and all sorts of organisations. That is really, really brilliant. No, thank you. I, I really appreciate it. <laughs> and Jared, I know you're, you're busy working in your bookshop now. Uh, <laughs> I hear you've got one particular customer who enjoys royal titles. So it was in my shop. One of my colleagues told me from another shop in um, Clapham that there's a gentleman who's a regular who tends to take books about the Queen and shove them down his trousers. And they just happened to catch him outside um, with the book one time. And now they call him Captain Underpants. But he seems to really, really like the Queen, I guess. Because books about the Queen tend to be like big coffee table books. I mean, these are some big trousers. Yeah, exactly. Well, we've got a new one about her just entitled Elizabeth. And it's a big hardback. And I think that was the one that he got caught with. You would do. Yeah. Hard to conceal. Yes, he overreached himself. (laughs) Yeah, a little bit. Uh, All right. Well, listen, we'll come back to you uh, later on to discover whether talks are fruitful or if it's one out, all out. Of course, Emile Zola is no longer with us. But we have an excellent plan B. Former children's laureate and much-loved author and broadcaster Michael Rosen is also a Zola expert. And we'll be speaking to him later on, as well as hearing about Alex's Three of the best. And Alex, I believe we're still Viva la Francine. Well, I thought this was, you know, a pretty good way to go. Let's take inspiration from our our read of the week and go to all things French. Although what I've tried to do is steer clear for these three of the best from that sort of 28 book series that uh, French authors of a certain vintage really have taken to their hearts. So these are much, much more concise reads, shall we say. All right. Très, très bien. (laughs) And sticking with epic themes. 
It has been said that the greatest pursuit of human life is to love and to be loved. We believe in love. It's in our nature to be drawn to love stories, to long for one of our own, and to hope that true love is possible. But many of us also know what it feels like to be a flower that's been cut and stuck in water only to wilt and lose our bloom. Jay Shetty is an internet sensation and best-selling author whose 2020 title, Think Like a Monk, topped charts around the world. He says his aim is to make wisdom go viral, and he has a new book out to help with that, Eight Rules of Love. He'll be telling us about those later on in our talking book slot. So, it's time to come down to Earth. Germinal, named after spring month of the French Revolutionary calendar and coming from the Latin for seed, is set in the harsh surroundings of the coal mines of northern France during the 1860s. Etienne Lantier arrives in Montsou looking for work and is befriended by the Mahoud family of miners, including making a special connection with their 15-year-old daughter, Catherine. Despite the terrible conditions, Etienne takes to mining but he doesn't take to the unfair labour practices and miserable pay imposed on the workers by the fat-cat bourgeoisie, mine owners and managers. He becomes something of a leader, and eventually he convinces the workers to down tools, even though it will drive them deeper into poverty. The novel follows the progress of the strike and its violent and devastating consequences. At the same time, Zola describes in vivid detail the daily struggles, feuds and passions of the people, including the ill-starred attraction between Etienne and Catherine, which reaches its conclusion hundreds of metres beneath the earth as they face mortal danger. Emile Zola is considered by many to be France's greatest writer, and Germinal his masterpiece. His influence wasn't just literary. He was a major figure in the political liberalisation of France. Plus, he became deeply involved in what became known as the Dreyfus Affair, the false accusation and wrongful conviction on spying charges of army officer Alfred Dreyfus. He penned the now-famous newspaper article headlined J'accuse, saying the French authorities were anti-Semitic. During his involvement with the case, Zola was forced to flee France and lived in England for a year. The story of his exile is one that fascinated author and broadcaster Michael Rosen, who wrote a book about it. Michael very kindly agreed to give us some context on Zola's life and work. When we spoke, I wondered, was he always a Zola fan or was it the story of his year in London that sparked the interest? Well, I did A-level French and our very nice A-level French teacher, Mr Emmons, he uh, introduced us to some Emile Zola short stories. I think I was got pretty intrigued then. And then later, I think it was some dramatisations of Zola's novels, in particular Thérèse Raquin, that intrigued me. And then suddenly came upon this, what seemed like an incredible story that I really had no idea had happened, that this great French novelist, to some regard as the greatest French novelist, um, had spent a very weird nearly a year in England, running away from France. And this was after the, the Dreyfus affair, his big jacques, where he accused the, the French authorities of anti-Semitism. How famous was Emile Zola in Britain at the time? Hugely, massively, and for two reasons. One was because his novels were incredibly popular. He had become very rich. People absolutely adored them at all levels of society. Some people frowned on them. He was seen to be a rude, filthy, obscene novelist, as well as a great novelist. Uh, but also because he had taken up this 
case of the Dreyfus affair, as it's called, Alfred Dreyfus, a Jewish army officer who was falsely accused of having passed information to the Germans. So you've got to remember that France was deeply, deeply divided over the Dreyfus affair and had captured the whole nation. So when this great novelist, known internationally as well, took the side of Dreyfus, he wasn't Jewish himself, this was regarded almost as a scandal in itself, or at least certainly uh, something that attracted a huge amount of attention. And the books, you know, uh, there are two things people talk about, the working class fiction and the naturalism. Were they seen as overtly political at the time, or were we just sort of projecting that onto them in hindsight? Yes, it's a difficult point, really, because these things tend to go intertwined. Some people regarded the the mere fact of writing about working class people was itself disgusting, that they weren't worthy of being written about. Then you also have the notion that they were obscene because it described sex, it described animals' parts, it described all sorts of things that shouldn't have been described, prostitution and so on. So that that was an issue. And then also Zola made it clear that to a certain extent he was on the side of working people. You've got to remember that the main body of work, he was writing about a period prior to his life in what's called the Second Empire. People might remember that Napoleon III, who crowned himself emperor, so that was called the Second Empire. And the novels are set during that time, but it did give him a chance to attack militarism, to put forward a suggestion that working people um, had the right to exist and had the right to democracy. I mean, this was after the time of the Paris Commune, he's writing, but the novels lead up to the time of the Paris Commune. And talk to us about the the series of novels. Germinal is just one of, is it 20 novels in the history of the Second Empire? It's 20 volumes, the Rougon-Macquart cycle, as it's called. And he seemed to have been pursuing the idea of a personal political dynasty, if you like. I mean, he had some ideas that these days we would regard as very reactionary. That's to say he felt that somehow or other people were destined to do what they do because of some kind of bloodline. He did believe in that. But his other great project is what's called, you've already alluded to it, naturalism. And that doesn't, strictly speaking, mean what we understand by naturalism, which are things like cinema verite and filming things as if they are natural. He meant a a form of describing nature because he had informed himself about nature according to the most up-to-date science, sociology and psychology of the day. He imagined that you could create the perfect novel through research. So people often comment on the fact that prior to writing any one of his books, he surrounded himself with the latest examples of sociology available. And he described himself as a positivist. That's to say the whole of existence could be reduced to facts. And if you can deduce and elucidate these facts and construct stories around them, then that is nature. You have in some way or another created nature in a novel. And when he was in England, did he mix with English writers? I mean, would he have known people like Hardy or or Dickens? Was it that sort of, you know, society? Well, that's the interesting and quite mysterious thing. No, he cut himself off or he didn't make himself available. I mean, partly because he was scared that uh, spies were watching him and that he could even be lifted and taken back to France and tried and put in prison. So he was in a state of some paranoia, though, Rather curiously, he used to walk about in a very obviously French outfit 
snapping away on his camera. Another aspect of of Zola is that he was a brilliant photographer and, in fact, a pioneer photographer. And he took hundreds, if not more than thousands, of photographs while he was in England. But no, I mean, literally up the road... Uh, people were discussing Zola. Uh, Thomas Hardy was reading Zola. And in fact, when he produced Jude the Obscure and Tessa the D'Urbervilles, his last two novels, he was accused of being Zola-esque. And in the end, Hardy uh, gave up writing novels. Um, he just found the accusation and the bad publicity, if you like, that he got for being identified with Zola perhaps too much. And this is slightly off topic, but where do you stand on the whole Emile Zola was murdered by a blocked chimney debate? Because there there is this discussion about whether or not he was killed. Yes, indeed. So he died of carbon monoxide poisoning because there was a blocked chimney in the flat where at that time he was sleeping that night with his wife, Alexandrine. For many years, people assumed it was an accident. Bricks fall into old chimneys and that can happen. But then many years later, in the early 50s, there was a story that went round that someone had confessed to having blocked the chimney. So we have to decide whether that's likely. The great Zola scholar of today, Professor Alain Pages, he believes that's likely because, again, you've got to remember you know, the context of the Dreyfus case, that this is such a bitter battle that it takes place in France. Tempers were high. And so, you know, the battle still goes on. And in actual fact, in the last presidential election, there were still people muttering about Dreyfus. You know, that's the sort of thing that still goes on. Stuart Bain, who chose German now for the club, he wonders about Zola's reputation now. Do you think he's got the standing he deserves, I suppose particularly in Britain? Do you think that he's as widely read as he should be in Britain? No, I don't. I don't think many people read Zola for leisure. I think plenty of people read him as part of uh, university courses um, or extension courses of one sort or another and, and perhaps reading groups. But I don't think he's widely read in a popular way. I mean, luckily, people dramatise his work. There was a famous TV dramatisation of Germinal many, many years ago set in the Durham coalfield. And that worked very well, I think. And now, Michael, there are some questions I ask everyone who comes on the Book Club podcast. Is there a book that you remember turning you on to the world of books? Well, if you go right back to my childhood, I can remember being thrilled and excited when my mum read me Squirrel Nutkin by Beatrix Potter which, I mean, we we quite often laugh about children's books. They seem kind of very slight and always end in the nice resolution. But people forget that Beatrix Potter quite often includes elements of cruelty, uh, violence even. Little Squirrel Nutkin, he's very cheeky to the owl and gets pinned down by the claws of the owl. uh, And he just escapes, but leaves a bit of his tail behind. So it's rather a symbolic cutting off, we might call it, of a Little Squirrel Nutkin. And I remember being a sort of mixture of fascinated and petrified by it. But much later on, I, it was wonderful. My dad read us all on one camping holiday in North Yorkshire, Great Expectations. There we are, great English classic, Dickens, analogous in some ways to Zola. And uh, he read us Great Expectations with all the voices, uh, with a little paraffin lamp, um, lighting us up with shadows looming up all around us while my dad went, you know, give me whittles, boy, give me whittles. Um, or he was very good at jaggers as well. How much money do you want, boy? How much money do you want? Five pounds? 20 pounds? 
Very good. He was wonderful. <laughs> Sounds like an idyllic childhood. Uh, moving on, a book that you feel not enough people know about. Well, I'm going to cheat slightly and be a bit generic. Um, the Poetry of Langston Hughes. He's a wonderful African-American poet, and he wrote a wonderful mixture of poems, some free verse, some ballads, some blues. I think most Americans know at least one or two poems by him, uh, but he's quite neglected in this country, and yet in some ways he's had quite an influence uh, certainly on, um, say, Caribbean writers who've written in this country, but also in terms of the whole issue, if you like, of writing and engagement, which takes us back to Zola, because Zola is regarded as the father of writing engagé, as they say in French, which means committed. And in some ways, Langston Hughes is certainly within poetry an example of modern, engaged, committed poetry, quite often writing about racism, of course. And the final book I want to know about is a book that you admire so much you'd like to see by Michael Rosen on the front of it. Well, as I'm mostly but not entirely a children's writer, I thought I ought to choose a children's book. And for me, that would have to be Emil and the Detectives by Erich Kessner, a wonderful German book written in 1929, just before the cataclysm of Nazism. And it's full of hope and mystery and humour about a boy who gets money nicked off him on his trip from the countryside to Berlin. And it's a wonderful evocation of Berlin, which we now know was in its last throes of freedom and vivacity before the curtain comes down with the rise of the Nazis. So it's a strange book to read through that curtain that I've just suggested. But at the same time, it's so full of fun and life. And I loved it when I read it. And I've forced it on my own children, of course, who actually, um, yes, they did enjoy it. They did say, more Emil, Dad, more Emil. So there we are. I wish I'd written it. The excellent Michael Rosen. And we will indeed be having more Emil a bit later. If you'd like to dig a little deeper, then a great way to do that would be to read Michael's book, The Disappearance of Emil Zola, Love, Literature and the Dreyfus Case. And if you developed a taste for things French, we are here to help. Or rather, Alex is. Alex, qu'est-ce que c'est? <laughs> I thought I would pick up our theme and run. And I've started, I was put in mind of Michael Rosen here with my A-level text. We were made to read uh, three tales by Flaubert Trois-Contes, and one in particular sticks out. Now, these are three very short stories collected together in one volume that Flaubert wrote towards the end of his career. They were published in 1877. And A Simple Heart and Coeur Simpler is the little story that gave Julian Barnes the idea for Flaubert's parrot, because it is indeed about a parrot. It is about a servant woman called Felicite, who has lived a, a long and very difficult life, a life that has been marked by loss and tragedy, but she loves her parrot. And when her parrot, sadly, shuffles off this mortal perch, uh, she begins to see visions of her parrot. And it is a story of faith and, you know, a simple heart of simplicity, of belief, and I suppose of endurance. And I've never really forgotten it. Funnily enough, when I came to look back at this, I realised there were two more stories in these three tales. I couldn't remember them at all. Okay, so we've had our trois contes. Uh, what's our second conte? Our second is again something that I read when I, I don't, I'm very nostalgic at the minute. I mean, it's not an attractive quality, but there we are. When I was uh, a teenager, I read Bonjour Tristesse, oh, did you, by oh. Francoise Sagan. 
published in 1954, when it first came out in in the UK, in English translation, bits of it were indeed banned. I mean, I don't think we'd think they were particularly racy now, but it is the story of an 18-year-old girl, Cecile, whose father is a rather sort of wealthy and, and slightly louche character, has a string of girlfriends, and then finally he decides to settle for one. But Cecile is having none of it and sets about this sort of... I mean, it's a well-worn plot in a way. The uh, the stepdaughter or, or stepson plots to get rid of the interloper, but it has rather sort of uh, unexpected, unforeseen consequences. Uh, and one of the really interesting things about this is that Françoise Sagan wrote it when she was 19 years old. Wow. Can you believe that? And has it aged like fine wine? I would have thought this novel mightn't be, <laughs> mightn't be any good anymore. So I thought it did. I don't think anyone would think it was particularly racy now. Unlike my, th- I'm segueing, Graham. Unlike my third choice. Well, you can't be stopped. You want to get onto this third choice. All right. Oh, I know. Well, do you know why? Because as you know, in this slot, I'm always cheating. I'm always sneaking in a fourth. And this time, I'm going for not a, a novel particularly, or a book particularly, but a writer, Annie Ernaud, who in 2022 won the Nobel Prize in Literature. She is a novelist, but there is also such a heavy quality of memoir to it. Uh, The one that people might know is The Years, which was written in 2008, which is a sort of memoir told over the course of several years from 1941 to 2006 via kind of political events, pop songs, bits of culture, happenings. It's a sort of fragmentary work. Uh, But you might also enjoy Happening, uh, A Woman's Story, and perhaps one that's particularly uh, well-known, Simple Passion, which is the story of a relationship that Annie Arnaud, or the, the, the writer of this book, uh, had with a married man and details that kind of obsessive love uh, in, in a sort of very frank and fearless way. And I've kind of avoided these books because they always sounded sort of plotless to me. Would that be accurate? Well, I mean, I think the great stuff of life, you know, love and obsession and desire. Uh, I mean, I think that is the plot of life. Okay. I, I can't lie. There's more plot in Zola. There's... <laughs> Oh, yeah. Oh, yes, there is. Plenty more the plot you might want. (laughs) Uh, Thanks a lot, Alex. And if you have been too busy conjugating your verbs to note down the books we've mentioned so far, just visit the Amazon or Audible website, search for The Graham Norton Book Club, and you'll find our webpage with all of the titles we've mentioned. Right, time to dissect Germinal. Here to discuss it are former teacher, now social worker and timeline maker, Gavern Bennett. Hi. Hi, Graham. Hi, everyone. The mastermind behind the Bradford Literary Festival, Saima Aslam MBE. Howdy. Howdy. A former book blogger and current bookseller, uh, Jared Leachman. Hello. Hi. And ex-Orkney Library, Twittermeister and now RSPB PR, Stuart Bain, who chose Germinal for us. And Stuart, this is a bit of a curveball because you normally you're our, our crime guy. So uh, what made you strike out, as it were? Uh, what was it about Germinal? Well, I thought it was time to broaden my horizons and show that I'm not just a one-trick pony with the, the crime authors. I chose this book because it, it really contrasts with some of the, the titles that I have struggled with on this podcast. For me, some modern fiction is very sort of self-indulgent and navel-gazy and 
lots of woe and angst about very trivial things, whereas this book has so much misery, tragedy, <laughs> oppression, but it also has the humour, it has bodiness. I think there's a tone of optimism that runs through it, but I also enjoy the irony of in trying to move away from crime fiction, I have picked a book that possibly has more crimes than all the previous titles I have chosen put together. It's got everything. It's got assault, it's got vandalism, it's got looting, it's got murder... Then you've got things like uh, a sleazy shopkeeper having his wedding vegetables pulled off by a woman's bare hands and paraded down the road on the end of a stick. I mean, I don't even know how many crimes that is. You, you just can't run away from yourself. Also, thank you for the phrase wedding vegetables, which I've never heard before and will now never unhear. It's a good one. I use it frequently. So this is, this is a weird book for us, really, because I don't think anyone's got to go, oh, this is rubbish. It's really terrible. Um, uh, because, you know, it is a masterpiece. But uh, So let's start with people's expectations of this book versus the reality. Uh, Saima, was this book what you expected it to be? I'm going to be perfectly honest. I went in with zero expectations because it's all just like completely bypassed me. So I, I didn't actually really know what I was getting into. It just felt so pertinent, given in the North at the moment, it's really difficult to get to the South with all the strikes and we haven't been able to get our post and all of those kinds of things. There's just like this real resonance. And then I started reading it and really brilliant book. Yeah, absolute masterpiece. I was really struck when I was listening to Michael Rosen because I actually started thinking of Hardy when I started reading it. And I hadn't realised that actually Hardy had been compared to Zola. So I found all of that really interesting. Yeah, I must say, because I, I knew that it had been published in 89 episodes. That it had been serialised. So I was expecting it to be more like Dickens, but it's absolutely not. Uh, uh, Gavern, had you read it before? Oh, yeah, actually. I read it when I was 17. I was daunted when I read it now because I thought, hang on. When I first read this novel, I was like, like a really young man, right? And how's it going to come over now? Say magnifique when I was 17 and say encore magnifique, all right, as an older man uh, reading this. I want to thank you, Stuart, for bringing this back because it is pertinent, this book now, but to unthank you. Absolutely. Because there's a lot going on in there, you know, a lot of feelings that it brought up as I was reading it. And you said wedding vegetables? Well, there's a lot of women's <laughs> parts and, and men's parts popping up. And actually, even in the 21st century, I was a bit shocked. It's, it's almost like a pre-Netflix type book. It's like you get drawn into it. It's got my most wonderful beginning. You know the way it starts? Yeah. You know, it's almost like a dream. It's just beautifully written. You managed to even get a love story in the middle of all this stuff that's going on. So um, I'm a bit of a romantic sentimental, so I'm, I'm for it on that level. So, Jared, no matter how you, you kind of paint this book, it is relentlessly grim. Do you think it's that kind of that frankness and the sexuality that, that turned it into the popular hit that it, that it was at the time? Yeah, I think it contributed. And I remember um, hearing about how it was kind of unprecedented at the time to talk about the working class. And that wasn't really um, accepted or really a thing. So I do think that in itself just separates it from what a lot of the literature around the time would have been about. You imagine this is a very kind of left-wing novel, but the left-wing didn't like it because of the way it depicted the working class. Do you think the balance between political and personal uh, worked in this novel? Uh, I'll start with Saima. In today's day and age, we would talk about it being sort of very raw and earthy and, you know, all of those things. But I think... Um, I think when I first start reading it and, and you're getting all the sort of the sexuality and, and actually just the descriptions of people almost, it could literally be that he's talking about animals, you know, like that mm. they're all on all fours and all of this kind of thing. Because the politics makes sense. The reason for all the, you know, the, the uprising and the, the protesting 
I think actually as soon as you go into it and he's describing the condition and that bit where he goes down into the mine, I mean, I'm really claustrophobic. I really felt that. And then the way he's describing everybody, like his first impressions, I think that sets the scene beautifully for the rest of the novel. It's just like everything flows from there. And for you, Gavern, did he get the balance right, do you think, between the kind of overt politics and the, the, the kind of personal lives of the characters? The, the politics is not necessarily at the front. It's just a brilliantly told story. And I really don't like novels that where you can see the, the writer's politics on their sleeves and it's boring. And I think it's really realistic because I think, you know, in our everyday lives, the politics are just part of our lives. It's not that, you know, the life is over here and the politics are over there. That whole thing about the way they are living, there's a reason for those politics. You don't need to be smacked in the face with it. I read this really interesting thing about him, which is that he had not ever been to a mine or a coal field before he wrote this. I mean, it's extraordinary, isn't it? And then nearby, there was unrest and he went to visit. For some writers, that could be disastrous because you could do all that research and shove it all in and you just think, well, I'm reading this kind of terrible sort of leaden display of my research. And of course, it doesn't feel like at all, exactly as you're saying, it feels like a sort of natural background, which is immensely skillful, isn't it? It's his skill that, that I think we're all admiring. Yeah. And Stuart, as a person who, you know, you like plot in a book, it's this book struck me almost like filmic in that it's it's more like big set pieces rather than a, a, a through line plot. Did you enjoy that? Yeah, I really did. I, I think there's lots of points in this novel where big things happen, but they're all quite different things and it keeps it really interesting. But I think he is very skilled in creating the sort of the quiet family moments inside the homes. It's a book completely full of contrast between the real poverty of people in these houses who buying food isn't even an option for them. They're basically just trying to have some coffee to have a hot drink before they send their their husbands and their their children down the mines. And then you go into the the Gregoire's house and there was one sentence where he talked about them having sliced pineapple in a crystal bowl. That just seems like such an extravagance. Simon mentioned as well about how they were almost like animals and I think one of the things he does quite often through the book, there's sort of this comparison to about humans like animals and it's the two horses that are down the mine, the old horse and the, the young one that comes down. For me, that's one of the most powerful bits in the book and the old horse is getting excited by just the smell of outside coming off the young horse when it gets lowered down and he says that they both seem to be lamenting the old one for not being able to remember and the young one for not being able to forget. <gasps> just yeah. gets me right in the heart. <laughs> and, you know, this is a long book. It is a long book. Um, and a few people have mentioned the contrast and the, the light relief. Was there enough light relief? Uh, Gerard, did you find there was a, an, enough to, you know, leaven the bread? I think um, for me, I was pretty lucky because I listened to the um, one of the Audible versions with Josh Dillon as the narrator, and he really helped carry the book for me. So the darkness wasn't ever too much for me just because the way he narrated it, it conveys the darkness of the book, but without making it seem just you know, overwhelming and just overly depressing because I was more interested in the politics, to be honest with you. I was just fascinated by the push for socialism and how a group of people go from being a regular village or town to causing the death of a man, basically. And and I'm not saying we're doing that in the present, but it was kind of funny thinking back to 2011 
and the way the media reported the riots, almost as if they were senseless and they came from nowhere. And I think what this book does is show you that when the people revolt, there are always underlying reasons and they are always deep-seated issues that haven't been addressed. I think that's what the book does so brilliantly. It sets the whole scene for why this uprising takes place and why they strike. I'm doing this recording site in Bradford and we've gone through those kinds of problems and that thing of, you know, it's very easy from the outside in to say, oh, this problematic place, it's the place. There's always reasons for why things happen and you have to remove those reasons. And do you think, Gavarn, reading it now, it's kind of, more depressing because like you know this is set in 1860 written at the end of the the 19th century we're now in 2022 and although that poverty probably doesn't exist the politics hasn't really changed i was training as a social worker in the middle of the pandemic so some of the things being described in the book it wasn't as extreme as that but i saw something so it resonated with me on that level i found it quite difficult reading it this is a hundred and something years ago but you know i can't get a bus today i can't get a train today but i didn't find it depressing because even at the height of the suffering, they've got no food, they're on their knees, the children are starving. But then people are dreaming of this Jerusalem and they're seeing this wonderful city. And I was like, oh, OK, you know, I think about human imagination, being able to see beyond your circumstances. And that's part of the power of this novel for me. The, the title of the book suggests hope. It, it suggests rebirth. Did anyone feel optimistic at the end of this book, Stuart? Yeah, I, I totally did. I, I think all the way through there is this note of optimism in amongst all the bleakness and could have been probably the grimmest part of the book when Etienne and Catherine are trapped down the flooded mine and and they're there eating rotten wood and, and chewing up bits of Etienne's belt to, to try and trick their bodies into thinking they're being fed. But there's a feeling of hope and at one point, Etienne says to Catherine, nothing is ever final, you only need one bit of happiness to start all over again. And I think that sort of encapsulates the whole thread running through the book right up to the last chapter where there is this talk of renewal and regeneration in sort of the last paragraph. Yep, fair enough. Listen, I tell you what, we could talk about this book all day because there's so much in it, but we, we'll have to wrap it up and get to our scores about how likely you are to recommend it. I'll start with you, Gavern. Uh, out of 10, how likely are you to recommend Germinal? 10 out of 10. It doesn't matter whether you, you share what Zola Belid or what have you. It's just like a good story. We'll get into this and it's got the, it's got kind of Spielberg elements to it, you know, the big set pieces, yeah. but it's very, very personal. So there's something in there for everyone. I don't care who you are. There'll be some bit in there where you will be moved. Listen, listen to Gavern. Okay. <laughs> All right. Let's go to, uh, Jared. Jared, how likely are you to recommend this book? Well, for me, it didn't really connect with me. I enjoyed it from, like I say, the intellectual perspective of, just learning more about French history. It's the first classic French literature that I've actually read. But in terms of just as a book for leisure, I guess, I didn't really enjoy it that much. So I'll probably give it a five. Okay, five from Gerard. Uh, Saima, are you recommending this to people? Definitely. I think I'd give it a nine just because I think it's not the kind of book that you, you want to read if you want to go for like a light stroll in the park. I would recommend it with just, just with that little note of caution. It's very real. Yes, yeah, maybe not for a sun lounger. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Stuart Bain, uh, you chose Germinal. Are you still keen to recommend it to everybody? Absolutely. I think this book works on so many levels. I think you can read it for leisure because the writing is so good that it carries you through the story. But if you want to unpick it, there's far more there. So I would definitely recommend it. And I'm, I'm really pleased that 
our first venture into the 19th century as a, a book club has generated such good discussions. So I will give it a 10. And that's actually the first 10 I have given to one of my own picks across four series. So that shows you how much I like this book. Oh, Emile Zola is spinning with joy in his grave. <laughs> Uh, let's find out what we're talking about next time. I believe, uh, Gerard, you're choosing our book for next time, right? Yep, yeah, I chose The Con by Simon Muir. Um, it's a gritty crime fiction based in the North. And if you like The Godfather, you'll definitely love this book. All right, well, that's The Khan by Simon Muir. We look forward to that. And thank you, everyone, for discussing Germinal by Emile Zola. See you along the way. Goodbye, clubbers. Au revoir. Bye. Bye. Now... Here's what sounds like a good suggestion. Write a love letter to your partner. If you want to create a lasting relationship, it requires you to dig deep. Take a moment to be open, honest, and vulnerable with your partner. To express what you're often scared to express. As a young man, Jay Shetty wasn't sure what he wanted to do, and instead of going to his graduation, he headed to India to spend three years living as a monk at an ashram in Mumbai. When he returned to the UK, he found himself surrounded by friends who were struggling to manage the stress and pressures of busy corporate lives, and they asked him to coach them on well-being, purpose and mindfulness using his monk's training. He put some of his content online, and people couldn't get enough of it. He's now a global phenomenon. In 2018, he had the number one video on Facebook. He has over 38 million followers on social media. His videos have clocked up more than 8 billion views. You heard me. And his podcast, On Purpose, has had 300 million downloads and counting. His 2020 book, Think Like a Monk, Train Your Mind for Peace and Purpose, was an international bestseller. He's now written and voiced a new title, Eight Rules of Love. When we spoke, I started with how he got from ashram to author. I was first approached by a publisher straight after my first ever video went viral. And that was a really surreal feeling because at that point, I didn't feel I had reflected from that point of view to create a book. I'd made one video that was four minutes long and it was amazing that it had over 100 million views and people were sharing it and watching it, but I didn't feel content. So I sat with what I wanted to. But the the thought of writing a book called Think Like a Monk was in my head for four years because... I was so fascinated by the lives that monks had lived and the book wasn't so much about just my journey. It was really about the work that monks have dedicated themselves to. And I also wanted people to see just how human monks were and how funny they were and how likable they were and how everything wasn't all serious and, you know, disciplined. There was also a beautiful humanity and childlikeness to the way we lived. And I suppose this is a slightly different idea, your new book, Eight Rules of Love, because as you say, Think Like a Monk was kind of your journey, but also talking about those men. In this book, when you're doing the audiobook, are you talking to someone? Is there someone in your head? Like, a, are they old? Are they young? Are they, is it a man? Or is it a woman? I'd say that I'm honestly talking to anyone who is looking to find love, looking to keep love and who's looking to let go of love. I think we can all relate to the feeling of butterflies and chemistry with someone, even if we didn't end up with them. I think we can all relate to this idea of, oh gosh, is this going to last? You know, I, I don't know. We're arguing a lot. And I think we can all relate to the idea of, I wish that wouldn't have ended. And so I think I try in my work to focus on the emotional experiences that connect us 
as opposed to the externals that may disconnect us. Well, as you mentioned there, that idea of falling in love is, I think falling in love is easy. It's, it, I, <laughs> I was really impressed that you devote so much of the book to how to fall out of love, because yeah. that seems to me the more damaging part of, of any relationship. Absolutely. It's it's so hard, isn't it? I mean, I, I can't wait to one day interview you and ask you questions about breakups and everything else. But uh, <laughs> I think so many of us have had to walk away from someone we thought we had a future with or the other way around, have let someone go who wanted a future with us. And I often feel that it's taboo, it's difficult to talk about it, or people feel like it's uncomfortable to talk about. Is it okay to leave someone if it's not right? And so I felt that giving people assistance and support in that area. And again, this book isn't about my personal experience. This book is about people I've coached, studies I've looked at, research across the years. So I consider myself a a curator and a curious learner and trying to bring that all together to support the reader. And I know it's not just about you, but yet, if you just sit down and you write this book, does it put pressure on your relationship? Because you're a married man. So I imagine your wife will wave this book in your face quite a lot and go, (laughs) I refer you to page 73. (laughs) (laughs) That's how I've set myself up, Graham. That's the mistake I've made, right? I think I got it all wrong. I should have been writing about something else. I chose the wrong topic. But the first thing I'm going to say is... I write about a lot of my mistakes in the book. Yes, you do. Yeah, Because yeah. they're so real. I think, you know, I can relate to like being really snappy with my wife one day in the morning. I can deal with the fact that I may talk about these amazing ideas and insights that I've learned or gained or even trying to develop, but fail at them every day. And so I think I've got my disclaimer there when my wife calls me up on it. But at the same time, I think that I do have to reflect on my own relationship. I do have to reflect on my own challenges because, again, that's another thing that unites us and connects us. I don't think there's anyone in the world who feels they don't make mistakes uh, in love and in relationships. And to structure it like this as a sort of eight rules, did that develop as you were writing the book or did you go into it knowing, okay, eight is a good manageable number? My original, which is going to scare a lot of people, but my original was 52 rules of love. And my, my publisher said to me, slow down, Jay. I don't think anyone has time for 52. I was like, no, I've got these 52 rules. My editor clearly said no. You know, to me, everything from the number of rules to the type of rule to the style of rule is important. And the reason why I chose eight is because I think we've always looked at eight as a sign of infinity or infinite, right? Like the sign, the symbol, we see that. And I think we look at love as something that's infinite. That's definitely an Eastern spiritual idea as well, that love is infinite. It's endless. It doesn't have a beginning or an end. And this this beautiful symbolic nature of the number eight was important to me. But I, I think we have that fascination with time and love. I think people think, when should I fall in love? When should we get married? When should we have kids? When should I leave someone? And so the number eight to me was also symbolic of an hourglass and the idea of time moving. Uh, and the reason why I like to teach through rules or principles or insights is A, I believe they're memorable, they're repeatable, they're digestible, which I think is a healthy way to share and for people to learn and pass on what they've learned. But I think they give us a set of parameters and guidelines in something that can feel quite ethereal. Isn't Jay, there's some questions we we ask everybody who comes on the podcast. First one is about you and books and getting into reading. Were you a a booky little boy? Was there a, a book in your childhood? So I think I didn't discover that I loved reading until my teens because school only recommended fiction books and I've never really been attracted to fiction books. And so I I mostly wouldn't want to do any of our school reading. And so my parents were really worried that I didn't like reading and I didn't enjoy it. 
And then when I was in my teens, I started reading nonfiction. And the first two biographies and autobiographies I read were actually David Beckham and uh, Dwayne The Rock Johnson when he was a wrestler as part of WWF and then WWE. And so I started reading about people's real life experiences and stories and I fell in love with them. I thought, this is amazing. And so I think it was actually in my teens that biographies and autobiographies became my favorite type of reading. And I think one of the reasons why I like having my podcast or why I like meeting real people is because I think I'm so fascinated by journeys and stories and decisions of real people, not ones that we made up in our heads. And obviously, when people are having a difficult time in their life, whether it be in relationships or just their life, they could turn to your books. Do you have a book that you turn to when you're in trouble? Yes, absolutely. So one of my favorite texts uh, is called the Bhagavad Gita, which is the book of wisdom that I primarily studied during my time as a monk. 700 verses. You could truly just flick to any verse and read it and feel a sense of connection to it, feel a sense of hope, feel a sense of stability and feel a sense of direction. And so that's probably the book that I turn to the most often. And is there a book that you feel not enough people know about? Maybe it's that one. Is there a book you recommend to people kind of, oh, you must read this? Oh, there's so many. Uh, I'd have to say that it's Thinking Fast and Slow. It's by Daniel Kahneman. And it explains how the mind works in the best way I've ever heard it been described. And because I believe so much in mastering our thoughts and mastering our mind and understanding how all of this works and our emotions and our feelings, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman is probably uh, my most recommended or gifted book. Jay Shetty on his top books, as well as his own Eight Rules of Love. It is nearly time to down tools, but before we shut up shop, I hear the approach of audiobook insider and chart maven Holly Newson, for it is she. Holly, do you have a last-minute offer to put on the table? I do indeed. Woo-hoo. We're going to go straight in with what I guess is a classic, if you can refer to self-help books in that way. How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie has joined us back in the most read non-fiction chart. To be clear, this chart can also include people revisiting Kindle or audiobook copies that they already own rather than just buying new. Um, So often we see personal development books like this at the top of the charts at the start or near the start of a new year. But rarely, one first published in 1936. Wow. Um, It's one of the best-selling books of all time. So if this isn't a big hitter, I don't know what is. Um, Also, I don't think there's much advice that we look back almost 100 years ago to gain. Uh, But some people do call this a Bible. Uh, So there you go. Well, I mean, you know, when it comes to self-help, winning friends and influence people, that's kind of, you know, what more do you want? What more do you want? Yeah. Uh, What else should we be looking at for, Holly? So hypnotist and broadcaster Paul McKenna is back with a new book called Freedom from Anxiety which debuted high in the overall charts when it came out in January and is on the most sold non-fiction chart. Um, He's not someone I'm massively familiar with, as I wasn't born during his days on BBC Radio 1. Uh, Sorry, I couldn't couldn't resist that. I didn't listen. Um, But but, uh, this new book is about how to handle overwhelm and panic and move towards joy. Uh, There's audio that you can download that goes with the book that claims to put you in a hypnotic trance that rewires your subconscious mind to relax. Um, And according to the charts, 
That's what everyone wants right now, which is fair enough. All right. And uh, finally, I'm sensing some young people stuff. Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> I can't resist talking about a TikTok book, um, a.k.a. Books that become bestsellers after a lot of love on TikTok. Uh, this one is by Lucy Score and it's called Things We Never Got Over. This is your fairly easy read fictional roller coaster involving an evil twin, a sexy bearded man, and an unexpected niece. Uh, and it's doing well in the overall charts. Uh, and if that sounds good, there is also a sequel. Oh, I can't wait. No, really, I can't. Uh, Thank you very much indeed, Holly. Don't forget, you can find details of all the books we talk about on our webpage. Just search for the Graham Norton Book Club on Amazon or Audible and all the information you need will be right there. Our clubbers have gone off to see how many copies of Spare they can get down Stuart's trousers, so it just remains for me to say merci beaucoup to ma chérie Alex. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm just looking up from my copy of Spare here too. I'm, I'm marking the most florid metaphors. Quite extraordinary. Why they didn't ask me to be that ghostwriter, I do not know. Yeah, we might have heard less about Todger. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, please join us next time when, amongst other things, we'll be talking about Jared's choice of the Khan and style guru Susanna Constantine will be giving us some glimpses into her life when she tells us about her autobiography, Ready for Absolutely Nothing. Till then, happy reading and listening, and goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.